Good morning. The theme of our service is the Lord will provide. And I went out to my car this morning at five past seven. Dressed, showered, packed for the week, and the car wouldn't start. That's the fifth time in so many months my car has not started, and I'm assured by Honda there's nothing wrong with the car. And I will phone them again tomorrow. I was going to phone Anne Muir by half past seven if I wasn't going to get anywhere. But I hauled my daughter out of her bed. We managed to get her car alongside mine. And with the jump leads, here I am. So did the Lord provide? Or was it my foresight and having jump leads seen as how it had four previous times failed to start? Or was it the good nature of my daughter who managed to actually come and help me without telling the whole neighborhood about the cruelty of her father? I think that the phrase, the Lord will provide, is one of the great confessions of faith. I also think it's sometimes used in ways that create more theological problems than it solves. What do we mean when we say, the Lord will provide That's what we're going to think through this morning. And the best place to think about such things, of course, is the place of worship, where we are in the presence of God, where we gather together in all our own experience and community and bring all that we have known and learned together into the presence of God to think and pray and give ourselves again. So let's first of all begin by hearing something about the God in whose presence we meet, the God whom we say provides. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water over it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day, and the fourth day, and the fifth day, and the sixth day, and the seventh was the day God rested. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And John goes on to tell us, the Word 
became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Lord who provides is the creator God, the incarnate Lord. We come before God in prayer. In our prayer, we're going to use twice the words that are written, open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. In a prayer of approach to God, we have to recognize our own humanity. For some, it's been a very busy week. For some, a difficult week. For some, a week of celebration. For others, routine, ordinary, and another one lies ahead. And sometimes all of these things can happen in the one week for each of us. So we take time not to lay aside the baggage that we carry, it's part of who we are, but to acknowledge it and recognize that it takes some effort to bring thought and feeling and experience together and offer that to God and ask that our eyes be open to once again see and believe in the presence of the risen Lord in our midst and in our lives. Let us pray. So Lord, we gather in this place which this community calls the gathering place. We gather because we want to, but actually we gather because you call us to come. And by coming here, we make time, or at least take time, and we gather in this place because it is special space. For here you have met us together as a congregation. And here we each have encountered you in the depths of our own hearts, in those places in our minds where thought has been deepened and hope awakened and trust made stronger. So here we are. And with all the other things that fill our minds, that we give attention to, and all the thoughts that race and come back and race forth again, we pray that you will, by your Spirit, enable us to settle, to be content in this place, because you are here. And just as those disciples, full of despair, found themselves helped by the stranger who joined them in their walk, and then the sheer shock and surprise of bread broken and their eyes opened. So, Lord, open our eyes this morning.
But Lord, when we open our eyes, you ask us not only to look within ourselves or even to gaze on the beauty of Christ, but to look out at a God-loved world and see there the truths and the realities. To see beauty and be grateful. To see goodness and rejoice. To see truth and integrity. And to affirm that. So help us before all else to look on your world with thanksgiving and hopefulness and the recognition that you have sent us into this world and placed us here in this time and in this space to be announcers of your kingdom, to embody in who we are together a people of justice and righteousness and mercy. But Lord, open our eyes too to injustice and unrighteousness and cruelty. Help us to see and to understand and to take time to think even of those things which distress So where others suffer because of the cruelty of power, where others are hungry because we don't live in a world that's fair, where others are ill and people die for lack of basic medicine and food, in a world where enough seems never to be enough. And so, Lord, enable us to stand in the place of worship with eyes open to the loveliness and the richness of Christ and eyes open to the world broken and needy and for which Christ died. So, Lord, open our eyes. Trust, which is sometimes a simple, straightforward trustfulness, and at other times a well-thought-out philosophical view of what the world is really like if you believe in God, 
In any case, you come to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and there does seem to be a pretty straightforward approach to the things that matter in life. So, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food? And the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. The Lord will provide, but how? in an unfair, competitive, unjust world. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. And Amos will go on to talk about those who lie on ivory beds, who drink only the finest wine. And the cost of that for others is the burden of the prophecy of Amos. Time to reflect And then a further reading from Amos, which Barbara is going to read. This is a further reading from Amos. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even although you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amongst the questions that the church particularly in its evangelical expressions, but also, I think, across all the traditions of the church in the Western world. big question in the last 20 or 30 years have been questions of what's called missiology. What is the church's mission? 
I find it hard to get away from that passage from Amos or the equally searching words of Micah, which we're going to sing. He has shown you, you human beings, what is good. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The Lord will provide. We believe that. One of the phrases that I hear a lot, and because of my nature, I suppose, I ask, but is that true? The number of times I've heard, just in the last few months, when we're asked to identify what it is that Baptists really hang on to, what matters, Baptists are Bible people. But are we? What exactly does it mean to say we are a Bible people? Do we know our Bibles better than other Christians? Is the Bible, the book that sits at the forefront of our church meeting, taking prior place over our agendas? Is it more important to know the Bible than it is to do the Bible? If we say we're a Bible people, does that mean that you could demonstrably show that our lives are Bible-shaped lives? Actually, doing what the Bible says can be a very dangerous thing. That's the problem in the end, I think, with fundamentalism and literalism. If I were to say, put up your right hand, those of you who have never sinned with your right hand, I think most hands would be up. But if you take the Bible literally, they shouldn't be there at all. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Oh, well, but Jesus didn't mean literally cut it off. Well, actually, the verb that he uses gives you no room to say that. But we know what he meant, yeah. And that's the problem. What does someone mean in what they say? So when it comes to a phrase like, the Lord will provide, we have to be just a wee bit careful not to think, that means that as long as I pray for something, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide what? Everything? Or the things we ask for in prayer? Or the things we ask for in prayer if we have enough faith? Does that mean the mortgage? Does that mean the healing of a loved one? Does it mean our own health when that begins to have a question mark over it? So is God's provision a kind of slow-release Euro lottery win that lasts a lifetime? The person of faith asks and receives and is never in want because God's capital is inexhaustible. Or is God the kind of ultimate app on the touch screen of our praying? Harder question. The Lord will provide. Just who does the Lord provide for? Everyone on the planet, that's demonstrably false. That's not true if what we're talking about is the basic goods of life that make human existence possible above that of mere dehumanizing existence. Well, but the Lord provides for those who ask and pray, but that doesn't seem very fair or divinely wise. So what does it mean to say the Lord will provide? 
Well, actually, each one of us here today, I guess, has a story or stories about how the Lord has provided. For me, many stories like that. A Labour MP from Lanark overturned a local authority decision and got me a grant when I was a young lad who had been expelled from school and had no O-levels and wanted to go to night school. At that night school, the higher English that I took, I took in a class of six, me and five nuns. That taught me a great deal about the open-heartedness of Jesus. These nuns prayed for me, a young Christian, going into the Baptist ministry. Or some years later, a check placed on our living room table when our children were young and we were skint. A friend who came into my life and others who have come into my life recently when much else in life was falling apart. Yeah, there were times when I can look back, so can you, and not necessarily all that long ago, and say, the Lord provided I was in a phone conversation recently with the AA. That's the Automobile Association. Just to be sure. And the problem really was that the car that I have that didn't start this morning is a Honda. If you buy a Honda, you get Honda Assist. And this morning they said they could come in two hours, which wasn't going to help Hillhead at all. So I phoned, in any case, the AA and said, I don't need AA cover for this car while I've got Honda Assist, do I? No, sir, you don't. And I could save myself 75 pounds. Yes, sir, you could. So I did. While you're on the phone, sir, uh, do you have house and contents covered? Yes, I'm perfectly covered for that. Right. Um, But do you have emergency cover for emergency repairs like the plumbing or your drainage or whatever? I said, no, I'm trusting God for that. And he said, without hesitation, maybe I'd heard the statement before, I don't know, but he said, without hesitation, well, if it doesn't come through, we can do it for 4 99 a month. <laughs> the Lord will provide, indeed, as long as you pay your insurance. But listen, we all have stories like that, where the Lord does indeed provide. Stories of faith, when the Lord has somehow or other become engaged, entangled, or somehow in our lives. But is that what this phrase means? The Lord will provide. Do you know where it comes from, first of all? I didn't do the reading from where it comes from. It doesn't actually come from the Psalms. A father trusts God implicitly. God is going to make his family into a great nation. His wife is old and he's even older. But instead of a care home, God sends them on an indefinite trek. And then at the age of great and perhaps even great great grandparents, they become parents' nightmare. And the most precious gift in creation becomes their blessing. A child whose very existence becomes the center, not only of their existence, but of God's purpose. Now we know our Bibles because we're Baptist people. And this weird and terrifying story, a text of terror with a boy tied up, a sharp knife, and plenty of wood for the fire. This is no comforting phrase the Lord will provide. It comes as the answer to a terrified child's question. Where 
is the animal for slaughter. And I don't think any parent or child can read that passage, Abraham and Isaac, without long thinking and deep questioning and the heart's raging protest. And without knowing where we stand, we know that we are teetering at the very edge of the Grand Canyon of Obedience, where we are asked to leap into the void and we recoil. That's where that phrase came from, the Lord will provide. It was never meant to be a wee text on the bedroom that says that when I'm hungry, God will get me a pizza. So whatever else that phrase means, it comes out of the extremes of human experience, of fear and faith. It tears the heart by the inner opposites of despair and hope. What was going through Abraham's mind and Isaac's mind? It puts us, as it did them, in the place where risk is absolute. There's no place of safety in sight. God alone knows, literally, God alone knows what will happen. Which was what the psalmist meant when he said, I rest in God alone. So, with that vast mystery of God's providence that the Lord will provide. And it's against the leaden skies of some of our darkest experiences. God foreseeing what is needed and providing. God keeping his promises against all the evidence to the contrary. Let's return to that question. What does God provide? Who does God provide for? And how does God provide? I want to give you three words that I want you to hang on to and put alongside the Lord will provide. These are the words, justice, mercy, and generosity. Let me tell you where I'd like us to go in our thinking. In fact, I won't tell you. Follow me and we'll go there. We live in a created world, a finite world. We hear a lot today about the finite resources of the world. And whether in 20, 50, or 100 years' time, this planet will produce enough to feed the human mouths that will inhabit it. One of the things we, I think, tend to forget in all our enthusiasm in our faith is that while it's true that the Lord will provide, God uses means to that end. God's blessings don't just fall from heaven like meteorites in the back garden. Often, God blesses us through others, mediated through others. So that labor MP, my father had to go and speak to her before the phone call was made that reversed the decision. Those nuns were a means, I have no doubt about that, to the shaping of my heart as a Christian and as a Baptist, and how I view other Christian traditions. A check needs a writer, and an underwriter. Here's where the Bible helps us to live, the Lord will provide. I want you to listen to these words. They come from one of the most remarkable women the Christian church ever produced. She lived in Spain about 450 years ago. Teresa of Avila. Here are her words. A nun... Carmelite nun. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. You are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. 
Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. You are the body of Christ, said Paul. He wasn't using mere metaphor. If God is love, and his love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, if indeed those who are in Christ are a new creation, if Christ lives in me and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, then we are indeed the body of Christ. And like the boy with the loaves and the fishes, we bring what we have. By the way, he brought it all. And Christ multiplies it in blessing, means to an end. We are the means God uses to bless, to provide for the world of our neighbors and our neighbors and the world. If you like, Paul puts it another way. Paul plants, Apollos waters, and God gives the growth. Same principle. But unless the seeds are sown, the growth won't happen and the fruit won't come. Our commitments to justice, mercy, and generosity are what enables God to work through us for the care and the nurture, the protection and the provision of this world. So when a multinational sports firm exploits images of injustice, oppression and exploitation, we will react with claims of justice, mercy and generosity. Did you see the Adidas trainers with the shackles on them? They were. They were a marketing ploy just before the Olympics. The idea was if you wore these trainers and kicked a ball, they wouldn't come off because they were shackled to your leg. And yellow plastic shackles were attached with a chain to the trainers. The outcry on the web was huge. The blogosphere went ballistic and it was withdrawn. I don't have any doubt whatsoever but that phrase, the Lord will provide, transfers from that dire situation in which Isaac and Abraham found themselves into those places in our own lives where our money and our food and our tools and our equipment and our skills becomes the knowledge transfer of technology, agriculture, and local development. I had no doubt about that. The Lord will provide, and where there is injustice, it's the Lord who, through those who are moved by his Spirit, will provide the protest against injustice, the support for those who are oppressed, the advocacy of those who are done down, opposition to all that builds on exploitation and unjust practices. So the Lord will provide is not so much about us getting what we need, but of God by his Spirit working through us for the blessing of others and what they need. Maybe we do want to say to some situations, if he doesn't come through for you, we can do it for four ninety nine a month. Don't say that to God. Four ninety nine a month can actually do quite a lot. Now, I don't like being approached in the street by people with clipboards who ask me if I'm having a good day and really in the end want me to sign a gift aid form. You can see it coming a mile away. But I have no doubt whatsoever that money is a means to blessing. Without giving is a form of negating injustice. We are the means to God's ends of justice and mercy and compassion. He has shown you people what is good. 
And what does he desire of you but to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly? That alert, costly, enthusiastic, imaginative embodying of the love of God, that's what this community is. You are the body of Christ. Now, if the church as the body of Christ truly reflects and embodies Christ-likeness, if the church is faithful to Jesus as his body on earth, then we are his voice when the stone throwers gather around the vulnerable. We are his voice when the poor are sold for the price of a pair of trainers, whether India, China, or our own cities are the place of manufacture. We are his hands that touch the leper and to hang with what other people think or say. We are the eyes that look up into the tree who refuse to demonize bankers and financiers of whom Zacchaeus, I guess, is the patron saint. We will take our loaves and we will take our fishes and we will place them in his hands to the blessing of others. And our worry will not be that we can or cannot afford this. But can we for whom the Lord has provided, afford not to live the costliness of grace, the extravagance of love, which has taken our lives and turned them into what we are. So instead of barcodes that put a price on our giving, we take seriously the Bible because we are Bible-loving Baptists, and we will follow faithfully after Christ. That great truth that is woven throughout the Bible, the Lord will provide for us and others and for others through us. And as Paul would say, my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And maybe that is the antidote to that culture that does seem to want to sell the poor for a pair of slippers. The great transference that Christians live with and live within. He was rich, but for our sakes became poor that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Not selling, but giving. Not grinding into the dust, but lifting to their feet. Liberating, nourishing, showing the hospitality of God. The church as, here's a thought, the church as the Good Samaritan that notices those beaten up by life, that transports them to the place of healing, I love the wee bit which says, here's the money for the bill. And if it's not enough, text me. Well, something like that. The extra that's needed to just be sure that this person's life begins again. I want to gather that together in one further thought. Yes, the Lord will provide, and we know in our own experience where that has been true. Yes, the Lord provides, and often through the generosity of others. We are means to God's ends. But that phrase, the Lord will provide, began at a place of dreadful sacrifice. And for Christians, that cannot but echo something deep within the center, at the core of our faith. The Lord will provide finds its greatest expression on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because of God's great love to us in Christ, Christian giving can never therefore be calculating or grudging 
are price conscious. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus. And when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The body and blood of Christ are the body and blood of the church. His body now on earth. Because through that bread that nourishes and that wine that gives strength and renewal, we have learned to pray a prayer which lies at the center of our faith too. Give us this day our daily bread. And so looking out on that God-loved world and praying that prayer that our Father, we have learned to pray us because that's more important than me. And we've learned to pray we, because that includes all who are God's created children and not just us or me. The Lord will provide is not emergency home cover. It's a way of being. It's a way of life. It's an inner disposition that enables us to live our lives acknowledging that yes, in my deepest needs, God is there. But for that world out there, in all its deep need, I am here. The question is, I am here at the disposal of Christ, whose life lives within us. And so our lives flow out in love and mercy and justice and compassion and generosity. So that, as the Lord provides for us and has provided again and again, we become part of God's providence for the world. And that too, I think, gives us a clue about the mission of the church today.